I'm Sarah Gross. And I'm Sarah True. And you're listening to If We Were Riding. Sarah, I'm pretty pumped about our guest today. So when I graduated from college, I moved out to Boulder, didn't really know anything about triathlon. And I joined up with Siri Lindley, who had this group of amazing women. Uh, And our guest today was one of my very first training partners from that time. Wow. And I know it's awesome. And it's been incredible to see her move from uh, triathlon to ESPN writing, trying different sports out, becoming a pro cyclist all the time, just pumping out this great uh, writing and like being this incredible advocate for women in sport, especially female cyclists, creating the Homestretch Foundation, which we'll talk about later. and has recently published a book. And I'm just, I'm so proud because we've known each other for like 15 years. Uh, It's been, we haven't seen one another for I think two years, but it's so cool just having these worlds kind of orbit each other and every once in a while we get to cross our paths and I'm just so glad we get to catch up on the podcast today. So our guest today is Catherine Bertine. And I'll let you do the, the formal introduction, but I just wanted to get that out there because I'm just so pleased as punch. Uh, wow, I'm, I feel like you just stole the intro. Like, it's amazing. Um, Catherine, hi, welcome to the show. Hello, Sarahs. I'm so happy to be here. And I just, I'm honored to be your friends, your friend, but I'm also just blown away by what you've both accomplished in sport. And I'm your biggest fan. And for me to follow your journeys as your friend and your fan has been so tremendous for me and for my growth as an athlete. So I love you both. And hello. (laughs) Hello. I was thinking today, Catherine, that if I think like we met on a ride, we first met on a ride in Tucson. Mm -hmm. And actually I was doing the math and I'm like, I think you were asking me about, I remember going around like Seguero Park on those lumpy hills and you asking me about handling, having like a baby and being, and coming back to being a pro athlete. And I was like, oh my God, was Rosie a baby? And then like, that must've been nine or 10 years ago. That sounds right. We were with uh, Marilyn Chicota on that yeah. ride. Yep. Yeah. I remember. Was that it? Wow. That's close to a decade ago. Oh yeah. my gosh. Isn't that wild? Yeah. yeah. Oh, also, I just have to throw this in here. I just remembered off the top of my head. I'm going to embarrass myself now, but because um, you mentioned Marilyn, um, Catherine and I roomed together at Marilyn's wedding in Hawaii. And it was right after Kona, like maybe five years ago. Am I right? Do you remember this? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Please continue. Yes. So I had, I got hit by a car in Kona. Um, on, on your bike. bike. Mm-hmm. And I was like, complete, I was like incapacitated, but somehow I was like, no, I'm going like, Marilyn's one of my best friends and going to her wedding and Catherine and I had planned to like book the hotel together, whatever. But essentially Catherine ended up being like my caretaker. Like I couldn't put on my own clothes. Like it was like. Oh, I don't remember that part. I remember you being incredibly like strong and very self-sufficient for just getting smacked by a vehicle. Like that was unreal. And you're like, no, no, I'm okay. I could see like that athlete mentality. Like I'm good. I'm like, you are not good. You just got hit by a car, but you were, (laughs) you were just so strong and determined. It was amazing. I I was so grateful for you that weekend. It was like a very like, was one of those moments where we went from sort of like friends who knew each other from riding together and training together to like, you know, really like in the hotel together, like I needed you to take care of me. So I feel like our, it was like a next level friendship uh, 
Oh, well, hey, look, you equally took care of me because by that point I was only, what, seven or eight months out from a pretty significant brain injury. Mm. So we were a good pair together. (laughs) Between between the two of you, you had a great time at the wedding. Everybody was dressed. You know, that's the important part. That's right. The fact that we remember the wedding. So that's great. Yeah. (laughs) Winning. Definitely winning. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. So our formal introduction of our guest, uh, we have former pro cyclist journalist, a writer who with a newly released book called The Stand, which we are going to talk about. Uh, She's the founder of the Homestretch Foundation and activist and a woman that I owe dinner to because the last time we were in Tucson had dinner together. Uh, I forgot my credit card. (laughs) I don't even remember that. (laughs) Um, Coming up on the show, we're going to talk to Catherine about the impetus for her new book, the writing process, self-publishing in the publishing world. And of course, we're going to do I Rock Because. Hey, feisty folks. Jamila here, the Feisty Team Community Innovator. In June of 2020, we launched the Feisty Team to help you all stay feisty no matter what the year threw your way. Over the last six months, we've come together as a team to try and make the world a feistier place and connect with other like-minded friends in triathlon and endurance sports. We meet every month and bring in experts that can help us on the path to building feistiness in ourselves and others and create meaningful change in our sport and community. The monthly subscription is only $22 and you'll get monthly feisty huddles and webinars with expert guests, big sponsor discounts, swag and monthly prizes, challenges to stay motivated, a community of feisty like-minded friends. Plus we are adding new initiatives all the time, like our new book club and virtual workouts. Go to feistyteam.com to join us and become a part of the feistiest team in endurance sports so we can crush 2021 together. That is feistyteam.com. Okay, so I know I've heard a little bit of the, about this story of how you came to decide. Tell us first the stand, what the book is about. Okay, so I should start by saying it's not the stand, that's Stephen King. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I wish he could join us today. That'd be awesome. <laughs> it's just stand. Yeah. So Stephen is, is the noun and I'm the verb. And that's- Ooh, I like it. That's the good differentiation there. So I, I'm just- I apologize. This that's is what okay. happens when you don't, you don't prepare for a podcast. You know what's great <laughs> is it will stick in people's minds. And if they go and Google the stand, as long as they get my name in there somewhere, it'll probably pop up. So it's okay. Maybe I could reach Excellent. out to Stephen about that and be like, hey, <laughs> we could like cross coordinate here. But um, yeah, stand, stand just was released on February 1st, just a few weeks back. And um Yeah, this journey, so Stand, I'll give you the subtitle. It is a memoir on activism, a manual for progress. And the book is about what really happens when we stand up and and stand on the front lines of change and we fight for what we believe. You know, what are the backstories that really happen when we we commit to that level of advocacy or activism? Mm -hmm. And I set it against um, the backdrop of my fight for women's inclusion at the Tour de France. Uh, But the real takeaway that I'm hoping this book leaves people with is the fact that we are all capable of creating change. You don't need to be famous, wealthy, politician, movie star, gold medal Olympian. Like we all have this power to make a difference. And usually the main ingredient is going to be teamwork. It's going to be finding other like-minded people that you can work with who help get your mission um, from point A to point B. So um, that's, that's the, the heart and soul of the, of the story. And, you know, I worked on this platform with, um, Marianne Voss and Emma Cooley, who in the world of women's road cycling are two huge names. They are multiple time world champions and Olympians. Um, and then our fourth member of our group was Chrissy Wellington. 
who I befriended back in 2011. And she wanted to be part of this too. And of course, I was like, absolutely, yes, please join forces. And so here we are with these, you know, these three incredible athletes of, um, you know, world renowned platform, especially at that time. And then there's me, <laughs> you know, I don't have those athletic palmars. I sure tried my hardest, but you know, I wasn't uh, at the level that they were, but what I did have was the organizational skill and the, you know, maybe a little bit of the writing expertise of how we can compile all of this together and working, the four of us working together is what made that change happen. So, you know, I, they were the, they were the stars and I was the, the bus driver, so to speak. So, you know, a big part of talking about stand is how we, if we all use our skills in the right way, you know, we all have that ability to be the bus driver for change. So that's a little bit about the book. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you bring in a lot of your personal story into the book? Probably too many. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> do you want to th throw us like a highlight? Throw us a personal story highlight. Yeah. So I can tell you this. Um, I would say that the, when I first tried a, a first draft of Stand, I thought I would keep it all geared toward activism. Here's what we did. How, here's how we made change happen. And that was the driest, most boring draft I've ever written, you know, and it, it really kind of hit me that the only way that this book is, is going to get the right message across is if I also talk about the vulnerability and the authenticity of um, being a human being and trying to fight for change. And there's a lot of negative stuff that happens behind the scenes, but maybe, maybe if I share some of that those, you know, uh, those downsides, maybe eventually that can have a positive outcome because people then will be more prepared about what happens when we, when we stand up for change and we can go in there and be a war warrior, but we can also bring the appropriate, you know, shields and weaponry <laughs> to protect ourselves, so to speak. Um, so yeah, for me, um, everything from the vulnerability of personal relationships that I had um, I went through a, a divorce, you know, at the crux of this activism, that was really difficult. And then to think about writing that publicly, mm. um, yeah, that was really, you know, a choice to kind of put my soul out there a little bit. Um, and then another topic that really, or topic slash story that was very surprising to me um, in this quest of activism, you know, here I am standing up for women's rights and for women to have equal opportunities that men have. And I thought all women would be on board with this. You know, what, what woman wouldn't want equal access to, uh, to, you know, all those roadblocks that are currently out there. And I was really shocked at um, the, the women who would stand in my way of that. Um, it really highlighted a part of activism I didn't know existed about how we, we would meet opposition in, you know, in ways that just were, were unexpected. So it was, yeah. I was educated. Without <laughs> naming names, like, do you have an example? Of yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And honestly, it's funny. I'm laughing at your saying without naming names. You can name names if you want uh, to. Well, <laughs> in the book, I'll say this in the book, um, which is very much nonfiction, some names are names, real names and other names I've given pseudonyms, you know, um, so there's a, there's a mix in the book. And I'm honest about that too. In the very first, you know, the title page, some names have been changed, but in this modern day and age with Google, all you have to do is, you know, oh, well, who was the director of this team in this year? Or who was the you know, editor in chief during this year, and you can find these people. So I'm, you know, um, I'll keep to the the pseudonyms um, during the podcast, but uh, or the examples, basically. So when I was working at ESPN, um, they had just launched ESPNW, the women's side of the stories, uh, the of the the journalism within ESPN, and I. Um, the woman that they brought on board to be editor in chief came over from, I, I can't remember if it was Shape or Self magazine, but it was one of the more um, quote unquote women's magazines type that we were, you know, we're used to seeing. And she didn't really have too much of a background in sports journalism, but she sure had a team of writers and people around her who could help guide and say, no, I'm like, this is important. Let's do this. Let's do that. Um, but there were more than a few occasions where uh, some of my 
story ideas would be turned down. Um, and what really became very apparent was that what was happening was they didn't want to publish any stories of controversy or difficulty or problems that were happening with, uh, you know, in women's sports or with specific female athletes. They wanted it to be just, just show the winners, just show the gold medalists, you know, and I do fully believe that those athletes need to be featured. Of course they do because they are superstars, but we also need to talk about the struggle if we're going to change anything about about this. And also, of course, if we're going to be true and authentic <laughs> to, as journalists, it's our job to write the not so pretty stuff too. Um, so I was surprised, you know, articles um, on uh, mental health uh, were getting turned down. Um, articles on transgender athletes getting turned down. Um, I, I once, let's see, I remember one year I wrote a uh, a piece um, on Mother's Day, but about, but about being an athlete that doesn't have kids that got turned down, you know, and you looked at you and these were not all articles about me, by the way, these were articles about other people. Um, but it was really interesting to see that that was kind of a constant theme. And finally, we got to the point where when I did get my professional license in road cycling, I went to ESPN and said, oh my gosh, this is perfect. Now I'm going to all the big races and I have access to the best women at the highest level of pro cycling. Um, it's, it's amazing that I can tell these stories and there's so much inequity in the sport. I think we need to do a documentary and ESPN's 30 for 30 series was thriving at the time, but they didn't have enough uh, female representation in their 30 for 30 documentaries. So I pitched an idea to them, let's do women's pro cycling. And the response from this boss was, and it was very kind of snide and just dismissive. And it was, well, cover your ears, Catherine, but does anybody ever watch women's cycling? And I remember thinking in that moment, I thought, well, no, nobody watches women's cycling because you don't cover women's cycling. You know, but if you did, you're ESPN, you have the ability to create a visual, a visual platform for that to happen. You know, and that to me was, was crazy. Um, so I think that that was something that really, to me, just showcased how, in, how behind the times ESPN was, but also that there were women that were kind of standing in the way of the progress of women's sports, right? So that to me was, I don't know, unacceptable. So there's one example. Yeah. Um, on the other side too, and by the way, pardon my pause here as I silence that phone. I don't know if you guys heard the ring come through. We didn't oh, good. It. Never mind. Okay. Then nothing happened. Okay, good. Um, so the, the, the other part of, you know, where, um, I had re I really struggled with, um, the, you know, women standing in the way of women. And I, I coined the term in the book, I call it sister blocking. <laughs> and it's, you know, really, it, it's one thing if you technically, you're not a big fan of someone or you don't necessarily um, consider yourself a friend of someone, you don't have to be friends with everybody in the world. It's not like that, but to stand in the way of another woman is, is a different story. And that's something that we need to call out and make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, but we had a, you know, female manager on my, team in 2013. It was my second year on Cola Vida. And um, it was clear that she, she didn't like me very much as a person. Uh, but really what she didn't like was that I was being an advocate for, for making changes in cycling. And she felt that my constant call for equality would cause sponsors to drop us. And she said, you know, be quiet, stop talking about all this equality nonsense. It's not good for us. It's not good for the sport. If you keep talking about this, um, I will, you know, I will not race you. And unfortunately, um, she raced me once that year and benched me for the rest of the, of the year. And that was, I, that was so hard for me as an athlete. I really questioned my worth as a competitive athlete. And of course, mentally, when you, you know, when there's somebody that you have as a manager or somebody who's above you, but then you also look up to that person as an athlete and you idolize their career, you know, to have them take such a hard stance and really it turned the corner into um, bullying, you know, verbally abusive, some other stuff. That part's in the book. I'll leave that part in the book. But um, 
you know, what's also fascinating is the story that I'm telling you did not happen in kindergarten. We, I was in my mid thirties when this was going on and it didn't even dawn on me that, that adults could, um, could bully other adults. You know, I see it now in, in retrospect, but, um, all of that, you know, simply just because I was standing up and speaking out about women's rights and women having equal opportunity. Uh, so that was, that was definitely, that was a rough year. Um, but in the long run, I think it also, uh, came around in, in my favor in the sense that sometimes standing up for what we believe really is the right thing to do because, you know, sure enough, I, I forged ahead and I made independently, I made the documentary that ESPN said no one would watch. And eight years later, it's still getting downloaded. It's still being watched. But even back then we won three film festivals you know, we garnered, we garnered world distribution for this film. And um, there was an audience out there, both men and women that wanted to see more about uh, pro bike racing, regardless of gender, you know, so it was really exciting when half the road came out and kind of stomped down that stereotype of that um, editor who, by the way, is no longer at ESPN, go figure. Right. Um, And same thing, even with the team that, um, I shouldn't say the team, the, my teammates were fantastic that year in 2013. It was just the manager. And I always like to make a point of that, that um, the sponsor, the sponsors, the teammates were great. It was just one manager, but that person was also in charge of decision-making, right? So one person can be so effective that way. And, um, you know, she uh, no longer manages that team. Um, but also what was really fascinating was at the end of the year, you know, she dropped me immediately from the team and she dropped me because I was a rabble rouser for, for equality. And, um, a year later we had garnered, you know, all the support we needed to launch La Course by Tour de France. And, um, I got picked up by a world tour cycling team for being a rabble rouser. And, you know, for being a decent athlete, but for, for standing my ground, this team Wiggle Honda, they picked me up and I made it to stand on the start line at the Tour de France and the team that dropped me didn't even get an invite. So sometimes you got to think, maybe stick to your guns and, you know, trust the process and maybe karma will take care of the rest. <laughs> yeah. It just, I, oh, sorry. I, it does make you wonder whether those two women they they felt like they had gotten to managerial positions, positions of power because they stuck to the status quo and they were they feared that they would lose that power if they questioned it, like if they were associated with that. And it just what how have you processed how they how these women got tried to get in your way? Ah oh, man, you know, I at the time processing that. Um, I think I took that, that, uh, that viewpoint as an athlete of like, okay, okay. There's something in my way. I need to get around it. Almost like a, a an actual cyclist. If there is something, something, right. You have to go around it, like go around the rock. Don't hit the rock, go around it. Right. Um, maybe it was that, maybe it was just the idea that, um, if I were to give into those thinking those philosophies of like, oh, okay, well maybe we shouldn't publish these articles or maybe, Maybe I should be quiet and shut my mouth. You know, if I had taken that role, I, I know that that would have um, really eaten me alive inside. And it really would have been like just disingenuous to, to who I am. So, you know, processing that though, I have to tell you, it really took an effect on my, my mental health. It's a hard time to stand up for what you believe when you're constantly being met by opposition. So it had a cumulative effect. And I can't say that 2014, I'll save this part for for the book and for reading that book, but it was a pretty crap year. It was amazing in terms of activism. Half the road was soaring. It was doing amazing. Uh, Women, we got into the Tour de France, incredible things. I had a book that came out that year. All of this amazing stuff was happening. But on the personal private side, I was completely a mess and falling apart. So um, the, the true answer is I didn't process it well at all, but it's a hard thing when you have to show to the public this strong face, you know, I am the activist and it's all going great. And it was on one hand, but on the personal side, I was a mess, total mess. Wow. I had to, I feel like I like that my segue. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Yeah. I like <laughs> 
Um, I, you know, I did want to, I actually did want to create a little space there. I was thinking about um, like some of the, like the pushback that you got, right? And I, I actually love the idea of um, creating space for like a, a genuine intellectual curiosity around different ways to make change. So like if someone disagrees with me and the way I'm making change or you and the way you're making change to like come to me and say, hey, Sarah, I'm not sure. Like some people, we launched our Feisty Women's Performance Summit last week. We spelled women with an X. And I'm telling you, all my favorite people are the ones who came and were like, I don't understand. Why did you spell women with an X? What does that mean? What is it like? Because that's coming from a genuine place of curiosity, right? So there has to be, even like, um, there has to be, there always has to be space for that. It's the folks who, and like, sounds like from your, um, from your, what you're explaining is like, if someone doesn't open up that space and doesn't ask in a genuine way and instead just uses their power to shut you down, like that's where it gets gets bad right so it's like I understand that not everyone's going to agree with my way or I even understand that in change making there's like multiple different things that have to happen right like someone has to be the rabble rouser that's you <laughs> right <laughs> and someone has to write the book and someone has to like bake the cookies for the people on the front <laughs> front line yes. you know I think we've talked about this before like there's different like there's different places in change making and we all have to like kind of respect each other and I, mm -hmm. I I love it and I think it happens even more now when we see women who are in positions of power actually being able to see that or play both sides or you know some women who are um, who work for organizations like ESPN like sometimes they have to play the game a little bit mm -hmm. right and so if you were able to have an open conversation with that person like you're like hey I'm the rabble rouser right and for you how are you like, what do you need to do within your organiz organization to like keep your job, meet the criteria of what's ex expected from around you and still like move the dial a little bit, um, which will be a different, like kind of a different answer than, um, than your rabble rousing. D does that make sense? Yeah, so I, I think it's interesting because I maybe, maybe I give people the benefit of the doubt too much, but to me, the question is, there, there are always going to be people standing in the way of change. And I, I don't think humans are fundamentally bad. They can just be misguided. So like that editor, she was just very misguided. And just thinking about how you get through to somebody like that is really interesting to me because you, you two probably agreed on a lot of things. It's just how you go about affecting change she clearly didn't agree with you. So it's it's how do you get through to something like that to realize that you both fundamentally want similar things and trying to get somebody on your side? Uh, you know, it's such a complex question. And on one hand, the answer is very, very simple. It's about discussion, mm -hmm. about the ability to have a discussion. And I think if anything, um, we're in a misguided time where uh, discussion has has taken a difficult backseat to the fact that we seem to live in a time where people only want to associate with those who share the exact same viewpoints mm -hmm. all the time, right? And if you disagree with somebody, then disagreeing is uncomfortable or it's bad, you know? And I think that we need to reroute our thinking and that disagreement is actually really healthy. It's awesome. And just like you are both saying, it's absolutely possible that we take two different paths to get to the same result, but rather than looking at either of those paths as the wrong path, you know, what can we do to say, Hey, okay, I see what you're doing on your path. And here's what I'm doing on mine. And where can we, you know, make intersections that benefit both of us, or where do we have some disagreements? You know, those are, those are some big areas that can just get all boiled down and sorted out by having a discussion about something. And, you know, healthy, um, healthy opinions, you know, are, are just so great to be shared. I wish, because when I look back at the, um, the editor, for example, if she had ever posed the question of, huh, well, I'm not sure I understand this piece. I don't know why, why should we talk about transgender athletes or why should we talk about suicide and mental health? Had she asked those questions it could have eliminated that entire stereotype of, oh, this is, this is dangerous territory and just shut it down. You know, it could have really yielded some amazing results. And same thing with the, um, the director that I had. Um, 
if she had actually asked me some questions, like, what is this half the road film that you're making? Um, you know, tell me more about it. Uh, that would have been incredible. Instead, she took the viewpoint that I was making a film about myself. She thought it was a vanity project. Like I'm, like I'm going around with, you know, an iPhone camera just pointing at me the whole time, you know. Meanwhile, in our whole crowdsourcing campaign, it was very, very clear that I was a tiny sliver of this film and it was really about um, the women of pro cycling and maybe I'd step in as a narrator here and there. But uh, these were all so avoidable by simply asking the questions, you know, what is this about? Or what is your view on this? Um, but I think, you know, if we really boil it all down, does it come back, does it come down to what you brought up, Sarah, true about, you know, um, you know, this idea that maybe they were so scared of losing their position somehow, um, or and maybe fear is really the, the nugget of, you know, uh, what happens in those situations of why we're not progressing. Somebody's afraid of something. And rather than addressing and asking those questions, it's like, nope, I'm just gonna hang on to this fear and shut stuff down. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm also curious about the self-publishing industry, Catherine, you, because um, you come from, you've been published in the traditional way through a publishing house, you know, you come from journalism. So like you kind of come from the establishment of publishing and you decided to self-publish. Why did you go that route this time? Yeah, great question. And um, talk about getting shut down. Well, <laughs> I love it. A lot of people have asked, why did you choose self-publishing? And I'm like, honestly, I didn't choose it. It was the only path. It was either self-publish or don't write anything, don't publish at all. And here's why that came about. Um, my first three books were all done by traditional publishers or and or you can call that a corporate publisher. Um, titles like uh, Random House, ESPN Books, Little Brown, Triumph Books. Those are the big publishers that um, acquired the book proposal that eventually turned into a book for them. And in traditional publishing, um, your agent shops the manuscript, sorry, not the manuscripts always, but the book proposal to the publisher. And the publisher says, all right, we want to do this. Here's an advance. It's almost like they give you a, a small salary upfront to write the book so you can actually claim it as your job, right? Um, so here I am, three published books, and I'm thinking, this is great. When By the time I get to book four, these publishers, somebody's going to want this uh, book proposal. And I think that I'm climbing up this ladder of, of recognition. And the previous books had done well. They sold okay, you know? It's not like Steven Spielberg came in and bought the rights, not yet. But, you know, um, I was doing okay. And so my agent takes the book proposal for Stand, which just what we said, you know, this is a book about really what happens when we stand on the front lines of change, set against this backdrop in professional sports. Um, and it's written by a woman and women who fight for change together. Like, this is kind of, this is, this is important. It's also important for this time, this day and age, you know. Uh, but here's what happened. My agent took that to 25 different big corporate publishers, including the ones that had previously published it, and they all turned it down for the very same reason. They, some were even complimentary. They're like, well, Bertine, yeah, she's, she's a pretty good writer. She can write, but we don't think a book about women who stand up and fight for change will sell. We don't want this book. We're going to pass. They actually used, there were terms, I love this, um, it was one of them said, don't bother, a book like this won't sell. The other was, um, and my favorite was, there's no room on the shelf. And I'm like, oh, there's no room in the internet? Oh no, what are we gonna no do, right? You know, <laughs> there's no room on the shelf. And singular, singular yes, shelf. The shelf, the, the shelf. The one women's issues books. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> There's no room on the shelf. Exactly. It was crazy. And luckily I asked my agent, I said, please share all the rejections with me. You know, and that's where I was able to glean these actual, the verbiage that came back. No, it won't sell. It won't sell. And it caused me to do a real, a first, a good hard look at how the publishing industry has changed. You know, in my first book that came out in 2003, which was on my career as a professional figure skater, there had no, been no books written about 
um, people on tour and professional figure skating shows. And the reason that that book got acquired was for that very reason that there were no books out there like that. Originality was marketable. That's why the book was acquired. But in 2003, we did not have social media. We did not have, you know, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram influencing the market value of things. So fast forward, here we are, you know, 17-ish later, years later, and now what publishers want is books that sell, that have a track record. And if you look back, you can actually see, you know, like, for example, right after Harry Potter came out, um, then there were more books on dragons and wizardry and, you know... It, which is wonderful and it's great, um, but how interesting that originality got shelved, so to speak. And you know, I watched this trend unfold. And sure enough, right now, without even looking at the New York Times bestseller list, I can tell you the top five books that are on there. One will be a political book on the right. One will be a political book on the left. One will be a war hero that did something awesome. One will be a pet that gave you wisdom. And one will be a celebrity. And, you know, I promise you that on the nonfiction bestsellers list, those are the five that you're, you're going to find, right? And why? Because they know that those sell and they keep turning them out. And I'm looking at this, I'm like, okay, these books are great, but not at the expense of shutting everything else down. So that's what was, that's what was happening this time around. Nobody wanted originality and all these publishers, they did the quote unquote comps like real estate agents do. They look around, are there other books out there about women standing up and fighting for change? The answer is no. Um, so therefore mine, they deemed worthless. And I knew in my gut and my heart and my soul and following everything that was going on is going on in not just our country, but our world, both socially, politically, everything, you know, this is the right time to put out books like this about, you know, empowering women, minorities, everybody that's trying to make change happen. So, you know, very similar to my decision, my decision to make half the road independently, I thought, you know what, screw it. I, I'm going to write this book anyway, and I'm going to found my own publishing label. And you know what? We're going to call it New Shelf Press because there is going to be a new shelf for this. Awesome. So I call it a New Shelf Press. And what I'm hoping is, yes, of course, you know, as a writer, I want my book to do well. But why I want it to really, really get out there and sell is so that we can get more books like this on the shelf. Books about women, minorities and progressive men who are doing cool shit out there, you know, I want to read those books and they deserve a shelf. So that was really, it was like, it flipped the switch of how many no's and rejections I was getting on something that didn't make sense. I'm like, okay, we need to forge through. Now, that's also the reason it took me three years to write stand <laughs> was now I don't have a book advance. I have to work this writing career around, um, just, you know, the basic income that you need to live and survive. So uh, Stan became my second at sometimes my third job. And, um, you know, had I given a, been given a book advance, we could have finished this within a year, we being the voices in my head and I. Um, but since we didn't get that advance, you know, it took three years to, to make it happen. But now I'm starting to think, hmm, maybe that's all. It's the right time, even more so for this book to come out now. So I can cross my fingers and, and hope for the best. And, you know, behind the scenes, we, the publishing team, again, much like everything else I've ever tried to do, it wouldn't have ever happened alone. It was all forming the right team. So it was uh, hiring an editor, a copy editor, um, a visual, or sorry, a graphic artist for the cover. Uh, and then Torsten Rad, our friend in triathlon, you guys are both nodding. I love it, yes. Torsten, I hired as my tech guru because he had um, gone through the self-publishing route of uploading books, you know, to uh, digital platforms, to paper platforms. And here I am thinking, you know, oh, books just make themselves. Little elves just sew them all together. But apparently that's not what happens. So I really needed a tech guru to help me with the actual physical compilation of the book. And uh, Torsten came on as part of the team and... Um, yeah, so it, it's, it's been an amazing journey where, yeah, I might've written this book, but the only reason it's out and it's been published is because of the people who came together, 
um, to make it happen. Some voluntary, some voluntary work and others that I hired. And um, now here we are. <laughs> it's been out for two weeks. I'm glad you mentioned the timeline there because I think like, I remember you pitching the, pitching the book, coming back, telling me these rejections that you were getting. Do you think that some of those publishers regret it now given like what's happened in 2020, the social justice movements that have become a finally sort of popular and, and we're seeing it like even, you know, we launched our women's summit, like I said, last week, like there's other, there's so many people launching things in the women's space right now. Um, do you think that they regret it? I would like to think that they will regret it. Um, because the book's only been out for a couple of weeks. I wish I could tell them, oh yeah, they regret it right now. But uh, we still, you know, need to make sure that enough people are, are purchasing the book because that is actually what's going to change publishing's mind. That when they see that the sales are coming in, then they're going to regret it. Because if you think about it, corporate publishers, they're only in this for the money. They're in this for the return of investment that they get. So when we prove them wrong that yes, this is marketable and it's selling, then um, they're gonna start shaking their heads. Here's the good news. They can start shaking their heads because um, let me set it with this backdrop that usually independently self-published books sell a lifetime average, a lifetime average of 250 copies. So yeah, right? Cause there's no marketing behind it. Yeah. So here's the good news after, you know, just not even two weeks on the market, we've already sold over a thousand copies. Woo! Woo! That's awesome. <laughs> so one of the things that corporate publishing thinks is that for a corporately published book, 3000 copies in a lifetime is something they consider a success, a quote unquote success. So if we're already at one that plus 1000 in the first week, then we're going to hit that 3000. We're going to keep going and they are going to pay attention. But of course that is where I need that, um, that visibility, you know? So thank you for having me on the podcast. I, I was just gonna say like, I bet, I would just bet like 98% of our podcast listeners would be interested in oh, this book. And I'll say it again at the end, but tell us now, like how, yep. how do they buy, can you buy it? Is it a digital? Do they want oh, it's want super easy. Um, how do we get it? Oh, super, super easy. It's on Amazon and it's also on Barnes and Noble. Um, and you can also ask your local bookstore to order it for you. Uh, we have three formats, digital, paperback, and hardcover. All of your indie bookstores out there have access to ordering the hardcover. Um, the paperback is available through Amazon. And the digital version is available through um, all of them, like Kindle, Nook, all of the other ones that I don't know exist because I'm more of a dead tree book person myself. I actually like the, uh, the physical ones, but yeah, between Amazon and Barnes and Noble and your indie book seller, all you have to do is, um, you know, type in stand and Catherine Bertine, it'll pop up or the stand and Stephen King. This you can also, also do that. <laughs> also an excellent book, but um, I, I recommend the extended version. Uh, but no, <laughs> he's, he's sold enough books. We, yeah, you know, we, Stephen King's had his day. He cranks <laughs> one out every like six months. Yeah, he's okay. great. I, yeah. I might reach out to him and be like, Hi, I hope you're not, uh, you know, disgruntled that um, that I've I've claimed the verb of stand. Well, <laughs> you have the noun, but knowing that this guy is very much an advocate for you know progressive topics, women's rights. All about it. I think he, he might be on our side for sure. <laughs> for sure, he seems like a good dude. He does seem like a good dude. <laughs> Oh my God. Okay. Uh, we're going to take a little break and then we're going to come back and do I Rock Because with Catherine. If We Were Riding is a live feisty media production. Sarah and I are truly and grossly thankful for our sponsors, Noon Hydration, Form Swim, and Orca Sportswear. Join the conversation by following us on all the socials at If We Were Riding on Instagram and Facebook, or send me a voice memo to Sarah with no H at livefeisty.com. Also, leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help. Remember that time we were ranked like number 206 best sports podcast in the Czech Republic? Yeah, that was thanks to you. So leave us a review. 
We can't wait to ride with you next week. Hey, Sarah, have you seen those new form smart swim goggles? You know, the ones that have the display right on the goggle. So you can see like in real time how fast you're going and your heart rate and stuff. Yeah, I have seen them and I'm really interested because they just added a an open water feature, which is terrific because you can go from the pool to open water and still be able to have those same metrics as you swim. Yeah, I mean, knowing how fast you're going in open water in real time is um, totally amazing. So I think it's going to revolutionize swim training. Absolutely. And if they add like a, a loon detection device to it, I'm sold. Done. Sarah, you know I'm going to make you go first. No way. No way. You had yours written down. I still, I'm buying time right now. I'm buying right I need to come up with one because... I was going to basically regurgitate a version of what I've been doing. You okay. Know, yes, right. I okay, I can go first. We always let the guests go last, Catherine, just so you know. Thank um, you. So that you could, yeah, you could have a little minute to think about why you rock. Um, okay, I'm gonna go with like, I, I'm gonna go with this. It's like kind of like a double-edged I rock because. So like, I rock because I went to CrossFit today for the first time in two weeks. Um, which isn't actually that hard. I think the harder part is that I didn't actually go to, like I actually rock because I didn't go to CrossFit for two weeks, which I feel really good about because um, there's like, there's a bunch of things like I've had some stuff in my, like my family life that I had to deal with and my business has been exploding and I had to prioritize things. And I think sometimes as, an, as a former pro athlete, it's, it's hard to prioritize um, non- physical things or actually just be like it's okay that I had four complete days off from not exercising this week like that's it that's like a record for me I don't think I've ever had a week where I didn't <laughs> exercise for four out of seven of the days um but uh yeah so I rock because of that and also because I went back and I just like it's interesting like I know that having been an elite athlete helps with this but um like my mindset when I go back is like like CrossFit, it's strength training. Like at two weeks, I've lost almost everything. <laughs> um, so like, but that's fine. And I'll just start where I am because I'm used to doing that. I've been through that routine and that pattern so many times in my life. So um, I'm just glad I'm like, I'm glad that I have all that athletic experience. Otherwise I'd be super frustrated with like, I can't lift as much as I was two weeks ago. Um, so I, I love that big picture, mm -hmm. big picture. Big picture. Yes, mm -hmm. big First picture. picture. Okay, so my, my big picture is a little sillier, and of course it's dog related. So yes. about this time last year, Buddy and I went for a walk, our 140 pound Mastiff, and he dragged me across a dog shit covered field. And I ended up like scraping my face, like I had, you know, grass burn all over, dog poop all over me came home crying wait, like you, wait when you say dragged you literally like you were all oh, around yeah. oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> oh gross okay yep so I came home I'm like I hate this dog we're getting rid of him and instead we did some dog walking lessons the other day uh we successfully walked during an ice storm where there was like a quarter inch of ice all over the sidewalk, all over the roads. I didn't get pulled over. He was a very good boy. I was a very calm owner. And it just, we made so much progress in a year. And I just, I rock because I learned how to walk with my massive dog. Amazing. <laughs> 140 pound Mastiff, oh my gosh. He's a sweetie, but he just gets very excited. And he's very much stronger than I am. And I'm. I'm okay admitting that. I'm also glad like we almost made it through an episode without an animal story. So I Sorry. Like you, you brought us back to our like to our original content type. I'm, I'm very happy about that. Um, okay, Catherine. Uh, okay, let's see. I rock because I try. T-R-Y. I no longer T-R-I, but I, <laughs> I, I'm going to say that I... Um, if I have one skill in this world, it's persistence. And I, you know, again, I'm not 
famous, I'm terribly flawed, I'm extremely vulnerable and sensitive, um, but I will fight for what I believe in. So I try, I, I do not always succeed, but um, there are times that I have and I just hope that we all will uh, rock our ability to try because we can all do that. So I'll keep it there. Uh, I rock because I try. It sounds very poetic, but. Uh... <laughs> we need to make that into a quote card for this week for our Instagram. Oh, no, I, I rock be because cool. I didn't get dragged by my dog. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get dragged through shit. Yes. <laughs> we, can, we can use that one too. Sarah. That is a really good one. That's better than mine. I love that. So, no, yours, yours is way more inspiring. <laughs> I think if we can have I rock because I tried and followed it up with I rock because I didn't get drag, dragged through shit. I mean, it's the same thing. It's awesome. It's better. It's so great. Although, <laughs> let's be honest, sometimes we do try and we are dragged through shit. Well, but we know <laughs> if we keep on persisting, it's going to yes. be okay. Yes. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. yes. Oh, oh my gosh. Okay, listeners, if you haven't already, go to the Google, put in Catherine Bertine stand, um, the, the verb, <laughs> the noun, <laughs> the verb. <laughs> With the <laughs> one word stand and um check it out uh i i actually oh i went on to order my copy and i got distracted by my child so i'm gonna do that right now well thus concludes another excellent version of if we were writing with our guest writer Catherine routine i can't wait to see you again in tucson hang out at home stretch foundation i also, please check out Homestretch. We didn't get to talk about it today. It's a really, really cool initiative that she started. Uh, and it's supporting female athletes because we all should be supporting each other, not getting in each other's way. Yes. Thank you. And thank you for letting me draft this fabulous conversation. I love oh. if we were writing and I absolutely adore you too. Thank you for such awesome friendship and conversation today. None of you people can tell me to stop My town, my crown We know what it takes to be reaching the top We're reaching the top We're reaching the top We know what it takes to be reaching the top